30 years ago, Steve Mignanti wrote his first ever automotive article. It was like, wow, yeah, I wrote this. It's cool, you know. So, and then from there, of course, uh, it was. It's, it's always a thrill. It's like seeing your name up in lights, and you know, standing outside in the theater and seeing, hey, that's me. It's Greta Garbo and me. It's it's a big thing in your own between your own ears, I suppose. But it is also, you know, it's, it's a thrill and a nice thing. After 30 years in the industry, Steve has carved out a reputation for deep, detailed knowledge. He's written a few books, hosted Roadkill's Junkyard Gold, and contributed to just about every magazine out there. And he's built some cool stuff to back it up. Your love of cars and history really comes through in like the articles that you write and, and in your appearances on, on all the show, shows that you're in. How did it all start? Like, how did you first fall in love with, with cars and automotive history? Yeah, well, it doesn't really make sense because, you know, a lot of people say, well, I got it for my dad, I got it for my mom. Well, my father was an optical physicist. He designed lenses for like um, for anything from contact lenses to uh, it was this weird thing he helped out with uh, the nose of a missile flying at Mach 3 had a, a hole in the front. Inside that hole was a lens that was below the surface, but it could see left, right, up and down. How the hell do you make a lens that can do that? I don't know. But he, had, he did things like that and, and manipulating light. My mom was a graphic artist, and her thing was uh, designing menus and and uh, just business cards and things before the age of the computer. Uh, so dad passed like 15 years ago, mom back in 86. So I'm kind of an orphan, I shouldn't say. But my brother Dave is an eye surgeon in Indiana. And uh, so my interest in cars pretty much came along like in, in fifth and sixth grade. Uh, we'd get home, my brother and I get off the school bus. Mom would have a matchbox car waiting for David and I. And within 10 minutes, I would I had traded David a candy bar for his matchbox car. So I got this collection going. He didn't really care about matchbox cars. But um, matchbox cars led to, and this would have been like 19, I was born in 64, 18, 1964, not 18. No, but um. So by 1970, I'm six, and you know, I started playing, you know, matchbox cars. That's when that started. Uh, matchbox cars led to, you know, Hot Wheels cars, Johnny Lightnings, uh, which were then kind of revolutionary. And I remember kind of, you know, feeling that the the British matchbox with its little plastic button wheels was so old looking compared to these things from California, these Mattel Hot Wheels with, you know, mad wheels and red line tires and all that stuff. So, but anyway, <clears throat> you know, the the limitations of diecast toys were blown out of the water when I discovered plastic model car kits, which were larger, 125th scale, had engines, dual exhaust systems, mag wheels, options, superchargers, what? So so like by 73, um, I'm about nine years old <clears throat> and building model cars. Uh, and of course, right around that same time, 1973, we got to remember that the OPEC oil crisis, 7123, you know, and uh, well, the EPA, I mean, we need clean air and all that stuff, but it was the end of muscle as we knew it then. Who knew it would come back? But anyway, 1974, I'm 10, and I remember being with my mom in our Volvo station wagon, uh, 122S, four-door automatic, uh, and waiting in for, to get five gallons of gas on alternate days. And depending, I think, if you had an even or an odd number of your license plate or something like that, depending on what day you get your gas. So to me, it was like the world was coming to an end. At that same time, I discovered a stack of old super stock, hot rod, car craft, and high-performance cars magazines in a buddy's garage. And they were only from 10 years earlier, you know, the 60s. Uh, but in 74, they seemed like they were from some other planet. So I'm reading about GTOs and 442s, which I thought were 442s. I didn't realize it was a 442. Uh, and then I see this thing called a Hemi, a Max Wedge. And I realized, wait a minute, it seemed like Chrysler might be a little more serious with this stuff. And why did Jungle Jim and his Camaro have a Chrysler Hemi in it? What is up? So then I kind of realized, whoa, wait a minute, are these Hemis were 
street engines. So anyway, that became like uh, learning about them through magazines and, and reading the works of Roger Huntington, um, Joe Oldham, um, you know, Eric Dahlquist, guys at Hot Rod and stuff, and just the greats, you know, and Roma Goningle, who I would later work for at Hot Rod, you know. So um, anyway, by 1981, 82, I graduated from high school <clears throat> and my yearbook page actually has a, uh, a picture of a Hemi from a buddy's Hemi dart. It was like, well, he wasn't a buddy. I was like this 10-year-old geek would ride my bike by his garage with this red dart standing out the front with Craig or super trick wheels on it, big tires in the back and a little Hemi emblem on the fender. So I know what that is. And I said, you know, darts, a Dodge Dart with a Hemi. They only made like a few of those things. Is this one of them? So he invited me. I come on in. Turns out it was a 71 Hemi Cuda engine in a 69 3.3 Dart GTS. That was a street rat, you know, and it, but it was his, his, his drag car. So anyway, uh, that led to, um, you know, just a love for Mopar. So off I go to, to Clark or Clark University College, 1982 through 86, graduated in 86. And uh, through all of that was building model cars. And yeah, getting the term papers done when I had time, uh, you know, graduated with like C's. I wasn't a great student. So anyway, I get out of college in 86 and there was really nothing going on in, in rural Massachusetts. I'm like, wow. And, and the best job offer that the, the Clark job placement office had was CBS Pharmacy's assistant manager trainee. So I thought, wow, this isn't so good. So I, I got a job at, um, at a Chevy dealership, actually, Ragsdale Chevrolet in Spencer, Massachusetts. They're gone now. But uh, I was a salesman. One of the first jobs ever was selling cars. And that's when I learned. And I was, again, I was 21. You know, I wasn't very uh, old enough to, uh, to meet, greet, measure their feet, as they'd say, with, uh, you know, customers ranging from, you know, some teenagers, but mostly older folks who I just couldn't relate to. I mean, you're 21, you're out of college. And, you know, what do you know about anything? So, um, so I sold 43 cars in the six months I was there, but I learned painfully that selling cars and liking cars are two very different things. So anyway, that led to, okay, I'm, I, I got to go to California. I want to either act or write for Hot Rod. And the acting thing, I did a little bit of acting in, in college and it was interesting. So anyway, I saved my pennies, my dimes, uh, didn't buy a four or nine, but I paid off my student loans and went to California. But along the way, I got to say from 1986, Six through about 1991, um, my grandma passed away and, and left me 10,000 bucks, which my dad thought I put into a savings account. No, I bought a 68 mini charger for 10,000 bucks when they were just starting to go crazy. Oh, man. Running, driving, rolling restoration. It was in primer. It had headers, um, but uh, it was, it was you know, ready and it was running, driving cars. So I used to street race the heck out of that thing. And when I say street race, we had a little spot in Palmer, Massachusetts, uh, Route 67 between West Warren and, and Palmer, where there was nobody around. So we would meet there on Friday and Saturday nights and, and do dangerous things safely. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It wasn't like, uh, you know, uh, Tokyo Drift flying down the middle of uh, the four or five freeway sideways with, you know, a Mack truck on the, a truck on the roof. You know, it, it was just, <laughs> you know, we'd make sure there was no cars around and it was late at night. And, you know, it was dangerous things done safely, put it like that. So, yes, I have street raced. And, you know, it's it's you know, whatever. I never got in trouble with it, but I always had Mopars. And then uh, after the Hemi Charger, I had a uh, 64 Dodge Polar, which I turned into a Max Wedge clone, uh, sold that car, lost the $6,000 profit I made on the Hemi Charger. But through all of this stuff, you know, got my hands real dirty because mm -hmm. in high school and into the first few years of college, my dad says, no cars for you until you graduate. So I did not come from an automotive household. Like I said, I was building models uh, and I still do. But basically, did not have GTOs and Roadrunners in the driveway. My buddies had them, 
but I could not have a car and I was frustrated. So I made up for that right after college. So anyway, knowing that uh, having fun cars on the weekends and stuff and having a crappy job at CVS pharmacies uh, was a problem. So I'm going to go to California. And like I said, either act right or become a human cannonball in the circus, no matter what it was, <laughs> it was going to be better than, you know, retail. And that's all my English degree got me was retail. Mm-hmm. You know, so let's go out and call it California. So I went out to LA in 1991, drove us Plymouth Valare station wagon. I had sold everything. Student loan was paid off. I had like 2000 bucks. I said, I'm going to go to California and stay one year. And if it sucks, I'll stay a year. If it doesn't, well, I'll, you know, I'll come home mm-hmm. and find out what I'm supposed to do. <clears throat> so um, one year became 17 years. And, uh, and the funny thing is when I got to California, I had already in Massachusetts back in the late eighties, I used to go to outdoor swap meets at like Stafford Springs, uh, you know, all these different shows where 90% of the time would rain, but I would sell old car magazines at these things and do pretty good. Like hot rod car craft, that Mm -hmm. stuff for a couple bucks a piece. So I went to California, uh, with a a bunch of boxes of old magazines in the back of my Plymouth wagon with the idea that I was going to first and foremost arrive on time to hit the long beach want me at veteran stadium in california every month they put this thing on and i went there and i rolled into uh, southern california on a saturday night around midnight i slept in my car in long beach in the line of cars and i, I read, read about it in the good guys gazette how to do the long beach want me uh that day i was up at like five o'clock the cars roll in you set your stuff up by seven o'clock and sell magazines and i did about 400 bucks in one one day i'm like wow this is good so anyway after the swap meet i drove finally to my buddy's place in north hollywood and that same day i went to the swap meet first then i touched down at the place i'm supposed to live at and i end up staying with my buddy bruce uh for about three months and then from there moved from apartment to apartment but on the second day in california monday i called a bunch of magazines you know hot rod the the receptionist didn't didn't listen to me it was like whatever i'm thinking well how am i going to do this so then i I call a thing called chrysler power magazine in azusa magazine this guy named roland osborne picks up the phone and what do you know three years i worked for roland uh and chrysler power so that was my first magazine job a hundred bucks a week it was a small bite it's still around chrysler power is still inching along it's one of the first mopar magazines uh but so i worked there for three years and that led to a freelance work uh for mopar action which is still alive and well it's cliff gromer uh richard ehrenberg um dan gallo those guys are still around uh and that led to um steve collison seeing my stuff and he's and he was of course the editor of uh, at that point drag racing monthly which was super stock <clears throat> and he said can you do some tech sure so i wrote a few things for collison in drag racing monthly and that led to ro mcgonagall the editor of hot rod seeing those and st- stealing me as collison put it away from uh, drag racing and then i went to hot rod so i was at hot rod from uh december it was august 19th 1997 through january 20th 2004 just about seven years and i was part of 77 issues of hot rod as the tech editor <clears throat> i worked with roma garnagal great baskerville he was a, a just a great guy, good writer, and uh, just didn't worry about uh, wearing a tie and stuff. He'd wear mm-hmm. sandals, you know, and and uh, so it was a, an honor to work with Gray. And of course, uh, Jeff Koch was there already, and Terry McGeehan arrived, and those guys are of course very much a part of the Hemmings dynasty today. And uh, so yeah, it was a wonderful seven years spent at Hot Rod. So did, did, where does that bring us? <laughs> I can keep going if you want. <laughs> well, I mean that. So that's kind of something that a lot of people dream of being an automotive journalist and to be an automotive journalist in kind of a golden age, you know, Gray Baskerville is a hero to, you know, and I was a little kid reading the magazines, you know, I didn't know who anybody was, but his articles always stuck out because they were always so crazy. You know, the way that he wrote, he wrote, I assumed the way that he talked and 
Uh, you know, so to have worked with him, I mean, that's kind of amazing. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I, I look back on it and who knew that on December 6, 2019, no, not Pearl Harbor. That was a day later, <laughs> but, um, but the magazine industry would summarily be uh, executed, so to speak. That was the day that um, mm-hmm. 135 people, you know, were, were summarily uh, dismissed. And, uh, and what used to be Peterson Publishing, basically uh, uh, 19 of 22 magazine titles were, were eliminated in one day and the crazy thing is carcraft rod and custom muscle car review mopar muscle all these magazines were unplugged without a farewell issue which is Mm -hmm. weird but it's business i get it and it was coming for a long time you know but i would never dreamt that would have happened when i was there at hot rod in uh, 1998 when the magazines were still at their powers and this weird thing called the internet was starting to nibble at its feet you know but um you know it is it's an evolution and you know it's all continued you know hot rod Motor Trend and Four Wheeler are the only three remaining magazines of the Peterson Empire. But of course, the television and video aspect of it has mushroomed. So, you know, it's an evolution. And I'm happy to still work for that part. Yeah. I mean, and there is a difference between digital content and print. And that's something that it seems like we talk about a lot on our, our podcast. But seeing something in print is is a different feeling. Do you remember the first time you saw one of your articles in print and what that felt like? I do. I, I still have it. In fact, I'm, I'm kind of, you know, I, I don't believe in astrology and all that kind of stuff, but I'm a cancer, right? July 14th, right? So supposedly cancers collect stuff. And I do. I'm kind of a sponge. Everything I do, I, I grab it. It comes with me in my life. So I have all of the magazines I ever wrote, including doubles and triples and yeah. even the care sheets and pre-production and even like the, the manuscripts. I have all that junk. I don't know why. But the, the first thing I ever wrote was for Chrysler Power Magazine. It was a review of the old IMC model company, Dodge L700 cab and trailer kit from like 1970 and it was like wow yeah, i wrote this it's cool you know so and then from there of course uh it was it's, it's always a thrill it's like seeing your name up in lights and you know standing outside of the theater and seeing hey that's me it's greta garbo and me or whatever mm-hmm. you know and it, it might it's it's a big thing in your own between your own ears i suppose but it is also you know it's, it's a thrill and a nice thing and and um so yes i, I do recall that and, and still still enjoy it when stuff comes out i still write for all chevy performance magazine which is one of the few uh well there's you know there's a there's a subgroup of magazines that are still mm-hmm. doing very well they're just smaller and something as massive as 10 which used to be peterson you know the right. enthusiast network um being so big like that it's it's got to keep eating and growing and feeding whereas smaller little things with 20 guys or five guys buildings are making the magazine it's much easier to weather storms mm-hmm. so there's a lot of little magazines still around for sure you know and it's one thing to see an article that you wrote in a magazine it's another thing to see a car that you built on the cover yeah. a lot of people myself included consider the Wilshire Shaker to be one of the greatest magazine project cars ever. And that was all you, right? Well, yeah. Yeah. The Wilshire Shaker. Sure. The wonderful thing about magazines, and you're not supposed to talk money, but I'm going to do it. Uh, When I started working in Chrysler Power, like I say, and here's the thing, if you want to get far in life, no matter what you do, be ready to work for free. Okay. (laughs) Volunteerism is a huge thing, but also know when to stop working for free. And that's something I still am not good at. But anyway, you know, with that said, um, you know, because I was working at Chrysler Power for a hundred bucks a week, you know, and doing the swap meets on the weekend and making two, three, four, five hundred bucks on my own, I didn't have to go and get a normal job someplace, you know, at an insurance company or whatever and give up my dream, so to speak. 
So I will say that anybody out there who wants to, you know, do anything, be ready to, you know, give it away for a while, see what you, see what you got. And then, of course, you know, and then the, the trick is to either get an agent and have representation or have have the nuts to ask for what you're worth. Yeah, that's an important thing. Mm-hmm. But anyway, beyond all that stuff, you know, um, the magazine world. Okay, so <clears throat> when I started Hot Rod Magazine, <clears throat> I thought to myself, well, I've been making about 20 grand a year, which, you know, which is enough to get by. I got to get 30. I'm going to tell Ro I want 30 grand. So I go into Hot Rod. He goes, well, Steve, what's the number? What are you going to get? Well, Ro, Ro I, I got to get 30 grand. He goes, hmm, how's 43 sound? You got me, which is to say he probably was ready to go 55. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Right? <laughs> So, but it's business. He had a budget to work with. So I, I started at 43,000 bucks in 1997. And seven years later, when I left, 43,000 bucks is what I made, right? Because there were four ownership changes mm-hmm. and everybody was told, okay, folks got to tighten our belts. So that stuff was going on. You know, John Diana would come in and say, hey guys, you know, we just got sold to uh, Prime Media or whatever mergers with with uh, the British company, sort of, with, with the, the British guys, forget the name. But anyway, um, so that, that was going on. But at the same time, one of the perks is being able to build project cars, right? So the bottom line with magazine project cars is you got to finish what you start. And we all know there's a long, not a junkyard, but a whole bunch of cars that started never went anywhere. You know, like Superstock Magazine, Project Six Pack back in 74, five was a roadrunner. This uh, Ted Struess, I think was his name. He did a good job of that, but that was an early example of a magazine project. Of course, Project X and Popular Hot Rod and that 57 Chevy, which was only owned by the magazine, but in many cases, editors and, and writers can own their stuff. So it's wonderful, you know, to be able to build a car for dimes on the dollar. And that was one of the perks. And that's what the Wilshire Shaker was. Uh, I will say this, I had about 23,000 bucks into that car of my own money. And what I always did, I always paid for sweat. Anybody who's sanding, painting, welding, pay the guy. Whereas you could also call Gary Penn at Chevy High Performance. Gary, I need a 502. And, and sometimes you'd call him up, say, you know, hey, Gary goes, what do you need? What do I ship it? Before he even said anything, because he knew that something getting into the pages of Hot Rod would make the phone melt, as he put it. Mm-hmm. So you'd get an engine at no charge, which was wonderful. He'll born injection at no charge wonderful our car would rebuild this push button torque flight at no charge wonderful you know but i'd go into the junkyard get the imperial uh, torque flight and pull it in you know so you had to meet it halfway but that was one of the lovely perks being able to build cars at, at the magazine so i thought to myself instead of doing the usual thing you know building just you know a camaro or something like that, i want to i want to make a statement i want to bring back the altered wheelbase car for the street you know, now I wasn't the first guy to do that at all in the 80s. Uh, uh, Brett and Terry Hayek, you might remember those people, mm-hmm. they had cameras, and they were the kind of some of the first people to put AFX cars back on the map, Ford style. So anyway, I said, hey, Roa, why don't we, or why don't I build a project car in the magazine? Not a gasser, but an altered wheelbase funny car. And there's a big difference. He goes, well, I like it. What do you, what do you want to do? Well, I'd love to find a 65 Belvedere or Coronet Post, put a Hemi in it. And he goes, yeah, you know what's going to happen with that, aren't you? A, not a lot of parts for the Mopars, and readers may or may not care that much about the Mopar. Of course, hot rod, 70% GM, and I get yeah. that. So I said, you know, I'll get a Nova. So Will Hansel, who was an editor at Hot Rod before I was there, was selling a 63 Nova two-door, bought that for 800 bucks, uh, rust-free roller. That's when you could buy those things for nearly nothing. And that became the basis for the Wilshire Shaker. Yeah, And, and that, that was four or five years in the making and it was on the cover of hot rod in black guide coat primer at one point um and that was the only time it was on the cover because <laughs> it wasn't quite done yet mm-hmm. but it was supposed to be done in a year but it took five you know like i say i had a welder living on the other side of my fence i lived in el monte california 
And on the other side of the fence was a guy named Dale Cooch, who was a free time, a freelance welder. And I would just push the car into his garage, just throw hundred dollar bills over the fence. And he just welded, put the cage in it, do the subframes, whatever it might be. But I would sort of tell him, this is what I want. And he would make it happen. So, um, so that was the genesis of the Wilshire shaker. And uh, when it was finally done, it was a little bit of pushback. Remember Jeff Smith, who I, I respect, uh, he was a big Chevy guy, Chevy high performance, but he says, Steve, you're building your death trap. You're leading your, your readers wrong. They're going to build these cars and get killed in them. I said, well, Jeff, you know, we're not going to go eights in a car like that, but you know, if it runs 12s, 11s, or even 10s, but it's streetable, that's the bottom line. And the thing with an altered wheelbase car is that it's really, I mean, if you build it properly and the welding's good and stuff, there's nothing more dangerous about it than any other hot rod, really. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the altered wheelbase treatment is no different than tubbing a car. So, you know, I'd rather, I'd put my fate into a, a leaf spring than a heim joint. In some cases, those things can break on a full length and that's no fun. So it was, it was fine. And of course, you know, I would never tell anybody to go cornering or go up Mulholland and drive and try to, you know, make like James Dean in an altered wheelbase car or any mm -hmm. kind of car with a high center gravity. So it was a wonderful uh, experience. On the highway, it would cruise along at 80 miles an hour, no problem at all. Uh, Three-speed torque flight. I was thinking at first about putting a four-speed or a five-speed overdrive so I could cruise. And the idea was power torque with the Wilshire Shaker. Mm -hmm. But in the end, um, in those days, just before computers, the staffers were required to to get the story of power tour. And, and the word was, if your car broke down, you were pushing it, you weren't doing your job, don't bring your car. So that kind of was a thing. Although some staffers did, and most of them paid the price when it blew up or broke. You know? Right. So, yeah, so that was the backbone of the Wilshire Shaker. And you you did actually run it. You you raced it. You know, oh, it yeah, wasn't yeah. just a street driver. How how fast did it go? That's right. Well, you know, it wasn't fast. I mean, it wasn't healthy fast. It hit a five or two in, in, in stock form. I think we put on the chassis down at like 310 rear wheel horsepower, you know, and with the hillborn. So we put a crane solid roller in it and stuff. We finally got, I think, I think 420 at the tire, which was pretty good, you know, 515 or whatever it is at the, at the flywheel. And um, and GM performance puts very, very mild cams in those crane engines at least the 502, 502, because they don't want it coming back, you know, over 5,500, it wouldn't go, and little tiny springs. So we made it so it would go seven grand, you know, and it, and it would then, I think the best ETA I got out of that car was 11, 20s at 114 15 and it was reasonable and would do a wheel stand coming off the line and it was it would do just enough of a wheel stand that you had to have your thumb on the number on the second gear button so right at 6200 rpm push two it would settle right down if you didn't and it went into um, either valve flow which you didn't want or if you if you push too late it would come down harder uh it never it never did anything ugly except broke the springs one time uh that's another story in a, in a few minutes if you want but as a street car it was wonderful there was nothing wrong with the big tall slicks on the back and I, I drove them on the street there were those the mickey thompson raider i think you guys might even sell those i'm not sure uh it's speed it's speedway but uh anyway but mickey thompson raider made these pie crust slicks again and, and they were very tall so the 456 rear axle ratio kind of behaved like a 370 you know so it didn't tack out you could drive it anywhere you wanted yeah for those of us who might never get the chance to what can you describe what it feels like to make a wide open wheels up pass in an altered wheelbase car yeah well i will say this you know I've, we've all seen the pictures and stuff and and the reality is wheel stands, except for things like the little red wagon and Hearst Hemi under glass, or I'm sorry, Hearst Hemi, yeah, Hemi under glass, not the Uh, But those are something that's usually avoided because it, A, 
screws up your pass and B really, really hurts the car, you know, unless it's built to do it. So, um, but you know, a, a little momentary dangle of the tires is okay. In my case, the car, the nose would come up about a foot and a half, two feet. So or you'd, you'd do your burnout, you'd stage the car. And then when the lights came down, you just have your, have your, your number one is pushed in. And again, a full manual valve body in any automatic is something I always go for because you don't mess around kick down, junk like that. And plus you can shift. And with a torque flight, it's a cable operated valve body so when you push two or or drive you get it right away there's no delay because the line pressure is increased so okay so the light comes down you have your thumb on two don't push it yet hit the gas release the brake off you go you come up keep the wheel straight it settles when you see the tack going at 61 two push two settles right down starts going straight and you just watch the tack put your thumb on drive the biggest button the bottom one six o'clock position push that one at 62 and then just go through the lights nothing to it you know when the, uh, the one time it did go wrong was um that car was funny if i took the exhaust off um it would pick up probably another 20 20 horsepower but more than that would become lighter by 50 pounds it was a one-piece exhaust two mufflers with four tips all welded as one unit i could undo that and then I did, I did a burnout and it, it jumped up and came smashing back down. It's like, wow, okay, don't do that when you leave. Well, the damage was done. I didn't know. We're at Lebanon Valley. This is probably 19, uh, oh gosh, it would have been probably 2009, somewhere around. I'd already moved back to Massachusetts and I've been, been here in North Brookfield for the last 11 years. So uh, yeah, 2009. So anyway, I brought the thing to Lebanon Valley, one of the first uh, trips back here to a track. And trailing it up there because that from my house is about a hundred miles one way, and you know, wide race and break it and push it home, you know, that whole thing. So, so anyway, so um, I, I did the burnout, and without the exhaust on the car, it came up smash back down. So I staged the car and felt the brake pedal felt spongy. It was kind of weird. Whatever. I'm in the heat of the moment. Let's run this thing. Light comes down. Up I go. Push the buttons. Everything's cool, but it just feels kind of weird. Through the traps we go, and I hit the brakes. And they're really spongy and the wheel feels really sloppy. I'm like, what the heck's going on here? It's slowing down. Things are cool. I turn left and the engine shuts off. What had happened was when I went up, the front leaf springs came down so hard, they both broke at the eye. The only thing that kept the front axle from swinging down on the rear shackle pivots was the braided steel brake lines, which served as drop resistors. You know, I made the pass. It was like 1130 at 117 on broken spring. <laughs> so, and the reason the engine shut off at the left, so when I turned left, the steering crossbar rubbed against the crank trigger on a harmonic balancer, thereby shutting it, munched the teeth and shut the engine off. Because ordinarily with the axle in its normal spot, but when it broke, it moved the axle back about two inches, close enough to rub the, the, the damper right. and the trigger wheel. So I, I roll off the track saying, whoa, broken springs. And it went back to a normal. The front tires used to be pushed forward in the wheel opening about three inches. It was, it was exaggerated on purpose. Mm -hmm. It was centered like something's broken. Sure enough, those lead springs broke. And Detroit Eaton Spring, I love you guys. Uh, I sent the springs back to them and I bought a replacement pair. And we were all kind of up in arms as to what happened. It didn't come down that hard, but it did break the spring. Uh, the main leaves snapped at the, at the eye. So. So anyway, so I, after that, I put it back together, raced it many more times, but put um, canvas limiting straps so that, you know, because the the brake, the braided brake lines hung in there. Otherwise, the axle would have flopped on down. I would have smashed down on that mess and, and wrecked the car. You know, I had a four point, five point harness. I would have been, who knows, but all the same, it would have been a bad day. But that was the only time the car frightened me. You know, otherwise yeah. it was fun and predictable. Yeah. I mean, you wrote the book on altered wheelbase cars for the street and, and in the book, there's a great intro about kind of the history of how this all came to be. And you mentioned picking up the old super stock magazines when you were a kid. What is it about that? The, the mid sixties drag racing 
era that, that you love so much that kind of sucked you in? Well, you know, we all know that, uh, you know, hot rodding started in the 20s, you know, but of course, Henry Ford, 1932, the Flathead, mm-hmm. post-World War II, all those GIs coming home, you know, you go from a tail gun on a B-17 to, you know, pushing a broom and, a, you know, something, you need excitement. So hot rodding was kind of the excitement from after the come down of, you know, World War II. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I, you know, as the factories started to get involved by 1955, 6, 7, 8, 9, uh, then, you know, and, and of course, hot rod encouraged that because they got a lot of advertising in the form of, you know, uh, the hot one from Chevrolet, these full page ads targeted for the first time ever at hot rodders. And of course the baby boom starts, you know, right after uh, 1961 too. And it was 5,000 people a day were getting their drive or more than that. It was massive. So and Pontiac, as we all know, caters to this new youth market with this thing called a GTO. And of course the Mustang is right on its heels, et cetera. So uh, for me, you know, basically the, the fact that high performance cars or cars graduated from being, transportation units to uh, to fun machines, you know, you can have both. And so anyway, for me, when the factory started messing around in factory experimental, which was an HRA showcase for the engineers to have some fun and match engines and bodies that never happened normally, that's when I said, this is going to get crazy. And I mean, in hindsight, I'm looking at this, you know, but the FX cars and the Superstockers to me were the beginnings of the factory going drag racing and uh, aluminum fenders, aluminum bumpers, fiberglass hoods, fiberglass doors, uh, which are not very good on the side impact, but that wasn't, that was before the days of legislation, but the 63 galaxy lightweight plastic doors kind of wow amazing so just the exoticness of things that looked so normal but ran so fast was what attracted me um and then when the the wheelbase alteration started which was kind of a response to the poor traction of the old hard slicks uh chrysler in particular 1965 you know moving things forward and, and the key with that as you know was the nhra rulebook forbid altering the firewall so you couldn't move the engine back. That's what they wanted to do because the mm-hmm. best way to get more traction is to put weight on the tires. And the best way to do that is to move the heaviest thing in the car, the engine, as far back as you can. Volkswagen is a great example of right. traction, right. you know, uh, to, to take the extreme. But because they couldn't mess with the firewall, I said, well, the rule book doesn't say let's move the wheels closer to the engine, which is what they did. That's what the funny car thing's about. And a lot of folks, well, they did that to make to do wheelies. No, that wasn't their plan at all. You know, and, and the early funny cars were very good at uh, hazing the slicks and, and getting nearly full adhesion and finally using the power, like a 427 Ford Thunderbolt. If you watch one of those come off the line in an old picture, often there's a lot of tire smoke, you know, probably a good three, four tenths goes away. Uh, whereas the, the automatic, particularly max wedges were usually pretty good. Uh, and then of course the altered wheelbase thing was good enough for everybody to, to copy. The, the Brutus GTO, uh, Lou Arrington, Jungle Jim, to me is one of the most beautiful funny cars on the planet. And I did a model of it way back when, and uh, just, you know, the GTO with the altered wheelbase uh, effect, anything with an altered wheelbase to me looks more dynamic. Like the, the suspension is jumping out from under the car. It's so fast. The car can't keep up. And mm-hmm. I mean, to me, like a, an altered wheelbase GTO has presence, more presence than any other car ever could. There's something about it, it just stands taller and it becomes almost a zip code, a city there. <laughs> and the name on the side and the graphics, if done right, can become almost like a, a meal, like an addictive. It's it's it, they're they're larger. I don't know if I'm the only one who sees this. Like the Ram Charger '65 Dodge was was a it was it was a religion. It wasn't just a car, you know. Mm-hmm. So you know that was to me the thing. And uh, so to put that back into circulation the best I could by doing the match bash street driven funny car thing was uh, a pleasure. 
you know, and, uh, and to some degree it's taken off, I guess, but, uh, you know, I, don't know, I hope people like it, but I, I do like to say that they're not gassers. A lot of folks say, well, that's great gasser you got there. Well, you know, gassers as, as you know, are generally 55 Chevys, you know, 32 Fords, Willis and that kind of thing. Um, but a GTO with a nose up in the air is more, well, to me, more, if it's done properly, more of an FX or a match bash car than a gasser, because yeah. a lot of them didn't even run gasoline, you know, they were alcohol, nitro, and, you know, so there's a lot of ways to do it, but most folks may see an axle, it's a gasser, kind of. We talked about that when we built our Week to Wicked Nova. Yeah. You know, we it? we call you were there, and we called it a gasser because that was the term that everybody yeah. understood. That was the term. We if you were searching for Nova, a straight axle Nova, you would search for Nova gasser, and so that's what we called it. But we did have a conversation about that where it wouldn't, it wasn't really a gasser. It, it would have been, in fact, a street freak or a or modified a AFX car or modified production or whatever. Right. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. And it's funny too, you know, trying to impose rules is the opposite of hot rodding, but at the same time, a little discipline goes a long way, you know, and to me, I, I kind of got a little, I was like the soup Nazi, you know, you know Jerry Seinfeld, you know, yeah. you know of, of, um, of, of funny cars for a little while. I did, oh gosh, we, I, I did, a, a, I've not regretted many things I've done, but there was one thing I did in Hot Rod Magazine. It was a gasser roundup and it truly was. It was about gases. I intentionally kept, uh, some guy says, hey, I got a great 65 Coronet Alter Rubius car. Well, let's keep it out because we don't want to perpetuate the idea that gassers and match basers and yeah. funny cars are the same. Uh, but I did this thing where the cars were there, but so many of the cars were so light, except for just one or two things like, you know, billet Moroso valve covers on, on a retro tri tricarb small block or something like that. Uh, dude. And it's often because people, you know, just weren't fully tuned in. Yet yeah, or something. So I did this thing. Uh, what's great and what greats? I rated each car and I gave, you know, I crapped on people's cars and print. I was, oh, I kind of felt bad about that because I I know this idiot who has a 60 or a, sorry, an 81 Ford Fairmont Alter Real Base car. That's me. So some would say, who are you to talk about? anything so that's one of the problems of being a writer you just you know but yeah that that whole thing about the gashes what's great what greats that i wish i could take away but anyway there is something to be said for the preservation of history you know as this goes down the line primary sources kind of disappear and so if those of us who are sort of entrusted with that history if we don't have the discipline to get it right then it won't ever be right again that's a good point. You know, somebody says, well, who's going to be the gatekeeper of this stuff? And, you know, often self-appointed gatekeepers aren't much fun to be around. And I never try to be that guy. And But it is true. You know, there needs to be that thing. I remember Ray Baskerville had a great thing. He would often say that um, a, a well-done hot rod has to have a singular theme and no sour notes. He, he loved jazz music. Great. And, and it's kind of kind of like his personality. But he, he said, stay away from, from sour notes and uh, and mixing metaphors, you know, like putting a sunroof on a woody, you know, or, or you know, suede interior in and anything. Oh, I didn't say that. No, no suede's cool. It's comfortable, you know, but just mixing it like, you know, weld wheels or super tricks on, a, you know, a flathead 32 Ford, you know, yeah. you know, it's just it's sour notes. But some people, hey, I like these wheels or more than that. I have them. I can't afford better. I'm using right. them. I get that, too. You know, so there's a fine line to walk. Yeah. Yeah. And of course I know this idiot with a Ford Fairmont. So, you know, <laughs> I keep saying that. I feel like that car, when I look at your, your funny Fairmont, it's sort of a postmodern kind of thing. Like, I know that this isn't right. I am, if anybody can tell you that this isn't right, I know that it isn't right, but by God, I'm going to do it anyway. Yeah. Well, the thing with that was, see, I, I did the Chevy 
the Wilshire Shaker. And then I said, I want to do a second car. And by that point, I'd left Hot Rod. But I bought a 63 Dodge Dart. I said, I'm going to do a, a Mopar funny car. And you can't touch a 65 or four two-door post B body for under 10 grand. So I thought, well, I'm going to get a Dodge Dart. Plus, there's a history of Dodge Dart funny cars, 63 and fours. So I did the Rampage, which you may remember. It, it was in some magazines. But, uh, but the Rampage was my Mopar. And I said, okay, now it's time to do a Ford. Now, for me, being the, the soup Nazi that I am, you know, with, with the funny cars, the only Ford you do has a 427 camera for an engine because that was Ford's nuclear weapon for match racing. Uh, yeah, the FE pushride engine was there. But, uh, you know, but if you want to be serious, you know, you had a camera if you were blessed by the factory. And then what to put that in? Well, okay, a 64 or 5 Fairlane or Falcon or Fastback Mustang. But again, finding the core, it was just strike three, you know, yeah. and let alone finding a camera. So I says, well, how about we take the camera's grandson, the 4.6 four-valve Romeo or whatever you want to call it, which is now an antique mm -hmm. made obsolete by the Coyote, et cetera. I uh, says, okay, let's use that engine instead and put that into something that's spiritually similar to a two-door post Fairlane or Falcon, Fairmont. In just a minute, we ask Steve about some of his favorite moments in automotive history. But first, to see pictures and videos of Steve's cars and everything else we've talked about today, visit The Toolbox, our automotive blog. Find it at speedwaymotors.com by clicking the Toolbox link on the front page. We'll also post a few to Facebook and Instagram. New episodes of What Moves You come out every two weeks on Tuesdays. If you like what you hear, tell a friend to listen to What Moves You on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. I'm going to take advantage of the fact that we have, you know, captive sort of encyclopedic knowledge with you. And I'm going to put you on the spot and ask you, what is your favorite story from the history of drag racing? Or at least at least one of your top 10 favorite stories from the, you know, wild and crazy history of drag racing. I'm a, I'm a Mopar guy at the core. Uh, again, because Jungle Jim ran a Hemi in his Camaro, you know, in his Vega. You know, I mean, it can't be all bad. Though. But um, no, I love them all. I absolutely do. And you know, back in the '80s, there was a lot of this, you know, Mopar, no car, and, you know, Chevy rules and that yeah. whole thing. And people actually fight about that stuff, which is, and I will say, the the, the compact sport compact craze of uh, 1998-ish, like that, right. unified a lot of people into if it's got rear wheel drive and it's American as a V8 or even a V6 turbo. It's a great car. So I'm over that whole Mopar and no car thing, but I do appreciate Chrysler. So I will say that the NHRA's treatment of Chrysler, particularly in Superstock and Pro Stock, the old, if you can't beat them outlaw, that's unfortunate, you know? And I will say too, that it all feeds into the March 1963 General Motors anti-racing edict. And as you know, GM at that point, I think controlled 70% of the domestic car market and antitrust legislation was coming its way. And that, that's a fact. So GM, I think they said, they have meetings, I'm sure, and you know, lower the periscope in every way, get down, get away from attention because it's going to come at us. So racing was one of the high profile things they could sort of put a lid on and maybe avoid the end, the breakup, you know, and it never came to break up, but it was close. Um, anyway, so by by cutting its own throat, so to speak, and uh, canceling the Hemi programs that General Motors really did have for the Chevy Small Block, the Pontiac 280, 421, uh, Oldsmobile, the, the OW43, stuff like that. Um, if General Motors had uh, really gone out, they would have had stuff that would have made the Hemi and the camera look silly, you know, and we would have had a true nuclear war, a great one, you know, for VA people. But because GM did that in 63, they were kind of an underdog. And, and at the same time, you know, they also got favor from General Motors and NASCAR because they were the vehicles that most people owned and came to see race. 
So when a Chrysler won too much, they would get spanked. So that was that's maybe a thing in history that I thought was kind of unfair. It's, it's not always the quickest, bestest car that gets to win. Uh, it can be handicapped out of existence if it wins too much and it's not popular. That's a bummer, but it's true. You know, and I would say, I guess one anecdote that I had, you know, one great thing about writing at Hot Rod for those 77 issues and many, many after as a freelancer in other magazines is getting to meet people that I that were legends. You know, I bought Bill Jenkins a beer one time at the PRI show. I wanted to, I wanted to yell at him for, for being mean to the Hemi with that small block Vega, that thing in 71 that destroyed Pro Stock. They didn't make any of those, but NHRA gave him a big, big, big pass, you know, and I kind of screwed things up, but that's okay. But um, another thing too is uh, uh, the Michigan Madman, E.J. Potter, uh, as we all know, he was the guy who I think in 61 2 made it a small block Chevy with Hillborns to a Harvey Davidson frame and went ex- exhibition riding all over the planet, Australia, England. So at one point, I was at Hot Rod Magazine. I got a letter from E.J. Potter saying, I've written a book. Would you like to review it? Yes, sir. So he sent me the book and a video and stuff. So we became like buddies almost in a way. I was calling on the phone and stuff. I was trying to get him on Leno one time. It almost happened because he would have been a natural because that guy would tell a funny story and Leno would have would have soaked it up. Of course, Leno was still on TV at that point, not doing his um, you know car thing, but still right. The Tonight Show. And it would have been wonderful to get him on there, but it didn't happen. But anyway... Uh, Potter said to me, hey, I'm going to be at uh, Moroso at the NMCA races. Will you be there? Yes, I will, because Hot Rod covered NMCA. So I said, well, let's do a photo shoot on your bike. And the people at um, at Moroso Raceway Park would not let him run down the track as an exhibition, I guess for fear that then a 67-year-old guy on a V8 bike might be an accident. Well, he was still very sharp. I mean, it's cool. But they said, you can go off to the back, back 40 if you want with your camera and do your little story. Fine. Thank you very much. So I did that. Well, we meet and he's got the, uh, the Widowmaker, <laughs> which is the name of that thing. I think it was number three at that point in the back of a pickup truck. And I'm looking at it and I'm looking at the chain and I realized the master link on the chain doesn't have the clip or the, the outer link it was just the, the, you know, the U-shaped component without the thing to make it stay put. And I said, EJ, EJ, and I pointed to him. I didn't say anything. I'm thinking, you know, here's this writer kid, embarrassing, you know, this, this legend. And instead of saying, hey, get out of here, he went, keep looking, keep looking. That's what he told me. Keep looking. In other words, find more. Cause thank you. You know, yeah. he said that would have been the world's worst ass woman. That's what he said. The chain, if that came off, it would have been. So the crazy thing, he didn't have a, a link. So they put the word out on the PA system and I some Kawasaki races or something. A drag bike, bike guys had the right item i guess the chains rather universal so we put that show went on literally just for me we went down to the back i laid it on my stomach motor driver my film camera no digital then mm-hmm. and here he comes at me woo, sideways and click, 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 click. and that's that story wound up in uh oh sometime probably oh, 2002 or something like that hot red magazine so it was a full feature and it was wonderful to be able to help ej potter kind of you know get his, his book sales going on and, and just to be his buddy kind of in a way you yeah. know and uh, and pete millar for that matter he was uh, also making something of a comeback with his illustrations. The Laugh Your Asphalt was the name of his business, Laugh Your Asphalt, you know. And not always so PC, you know, Pete there, you know, yeah, but his yeah. stuff was funny. And uh, I did all I could to sort of put that back and give him stuff. And Rodden at Random was a place where he could sort of, you know, give people a little uh, kiss on the cheek if they had something that was selling or whatever. Mm-hmm. So it was nice to be able to meet uh, Pete Malar and his widow later, because when he passed, but she kept going with that stuff. And I think she mm-hmm. might still be doing it. But anyway, so yeah, just... Um, I guess those are a few things that come to mind. There's, there's dozens, hundreds of you know, meeting Richard Petty, going for a ride around his neighborhood in a Challenger. He's driving him in the backseat with a film guy and he's showing the house where his girlfriend and he eloped from when he was like 17 or, you know, and, and, and uh, so, yeah, just, you know, the, 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 
car magazine biz, you know, you, you won't get rich unless you're a publisher or something like that. But uh, the, the things you'll experience uh, are, are amazing. And I imagine today's internet realm, it's probably the same deal. I would yeah. guess the paper thing was more formal. And it was, um, if you're, if you're on the bus and you had the ability to say, Stephen Yanni calling from Hot Rod Magazine, the doors would open wide and you could do amazing things. The Proving Grounds and uh, engineering departments at Detroit was another place that was amazingly open. And seeing things like a four-wheel steer IROC Z or a twin-engined Chevy um, Citation at General Motors, uh, just stuff like that that nobody would see, or a BMW V12-powered Caprice that they were evaluating the drive-by mm-hmm. wire system. So I put those things in the magazines as often as I could. So it's just, it was great to be, uh, have that kind of access for a little geeky kid from little Westfield, Massachusetts, you know, growing up to have that kind of um, experience. Was good. Well, you wrote one of my favorite pieces of automotive journalism ever, the story of the rocket drag axle. I had no idea that such a thing existed. And I think that that's why it's one of my favorites because it's just such a bizarre thing. What, what is it? Can you describe what it is first? Yeah. Well, the thing with that was uh, a Florida, uh, I think an aerospace uh, engineer decided that uh, he, you know, he could basically take some of the propellants and chemicals uh, and items that he'd been exposed to in his realm as an aerospace guy. I forget his name, but he was eventually convicted of mail fraud. But anyway, <laughs> yeah, turbonic, the turbonic drag axle. That's right. There were two ways that went. Uh, he had one system that was purely thrust. And the other one was actually a device that bolted to a specific type of rear axle that had a a built-in turbine that would start spinning like mad when two chemicals, I think it was, were combined and began to burn. And a white plume of gas would come out in the process of making that pressurized gas. It would spin turbines that were then, through this mechanical thing, connected to your differential. And that was the turbonic drag axle. Um, And so that was built... You know, I've, I've seen a couple in reality, but it seemed to me almost like it was a hoax, but there absolutely were some. Remember Joey Chitwood, it said on the said Joey Chitwood, it was a 65 Chevelle Z16, an SS396, one of the 201 or whatever, the small number of cars. Mm-hmm. And it was painted white and converted into a thrill show drag axle car. And uh, that was real. And they, they hung that thing by its rear bumper by a crane. It was actually a photo they took of showing that thing and laying out exactly how the drag, the, the, the turbonic axle bolted to what looked like a halibrand, I think, of full floating axles. And so mm-hmm. 12 was long gone. But supposedly, similar kits were sold by mail order to people who wanted to buy them. So that was the whole thing. You could send five bucks to the catalog. And there was a guy, when I was at Hot Rod, he's, that whole story came out of a guy that sent me his original drag axle catalogs, which were incredibly rare. And so I put, I photographed the heck out of those, put them in the magazine, part of that story. But that was the story of, of, of that. And I think by 1970, um, there were some, some crashes and stuff. And I think, you know, I, it was dangerous. So I think he started collecting money and not selling the stuff. Something happened. So it was ended in disgrace, but a great idea uh, in a way. Although, you know, I, I guess the idea was you could technically drive your car around and then put it in neutral and then pull the pin and whoosh, off you go down the track. And it was even a Volkswagen Beetle, a little uh, primate Beetle that uh, that ran and crashed. Yeah, that was one of my last. It was probably when I wrote that it would have been two thousand three or four, toward the end of my tenure at Hot You know, but after seventy seven issues, I was uh, I was done. Most people go about two three years at Hot Rod, and they go. I, I did seven. So yeah. And so now, present day, you, you've got a lot on your plate. You're the you're the voice of Barrett Jackson for one thing, right? Like you, you know, 
Yes, I, in a way, I'll put it like, I would say this, you know, well, Chris Jacobs or Mike Joy are certainly, you know, I'd call them the voices. But yeah, for 16 years, uh, Mike Joy and I, my, Mike, if you listen to the Daytona 500 on Fox, uh, he's the guy who, oh, they're the winner. That's that's Mike Joy. Right. You know? And uh, so he and I, uh, when the cars roll across the block, we have about four minutes per car to say something about them. That's hopefully not a guess, you know, and like I said, we give the car a voice. And then on to the next one, on to the next. So I've been doing it for 16 years and will be again in uh, in uh, Houston, Texas. In Houston? Yeah, Houston in September when the next show hits. Yeah. And and so, of course, then Roadkill, Junkyard Gold on Motor Trend. Yeah. Where where did the idea for that come from? I'll tell you, you know, I, you know you're not supposed to talk about dirty laundry, but I'm going to you know, uh, for years and years, I've, I've always loved going to the junkyard. See, when I moved to California from Massachusetts, you know, Massachusetts, I got to there and there were these pick parts, self-serve junkyards. You, know, you pay a dollar, go in there with your tools and buy the fender or whatever it is, flat rate, 30 bucks for the hood, you know, $63 for the axle, whatever it was. But in the yard, you would see an astonishing array of rust-free, clean California vehicles that once they went into that yard, would be picked for 30 days, the bones would be crushed, and a whole new group would come to replace them. And it didn't happen once or twice. It happened thousands of times. And in other words, Southern California, a lot of people were cleaning out their yards and continued to do so. And it was just an unending car show. It was, But it was also tragic because these cars were, when they, when they went in, they didn't come out. You could sort of buy a car, but they made it really hard. 100 bucks per car, they had to move. And if they had a title or not, they, they made it hard. As you know, the crush campaigns, you know, of Unical or another thing, trying to get clunkers, gross polluters off the road. So it was sad and wonderful at the same time. But anyway, so junkyards, great place to go hot rodding. So uh, over the years, especially in, in hot rod, it didn't like junkyard spotters guides. And they were always popular with the readers, although sometimes advertisers weren't happy. They'd say, hey, look, you know, this junkyard stuff's eating up pages. You could have done a piece on our headers. And we said, well, hang on now. These guys are going to buy the headers to put on, your, your headers to put on these junk engines. So, okay. Yeah. You're kind of a tough sell with, with the publisher, these junkyard things. But but I did a thing called the Junkyard Crawl and Car Craft for a good 10 years. And then people seemed to like it. So after I left the magazines, I said, someday, just let's go back into the junkyard and, and bring a camera. So I created a, about a, a half hour long pilot out of my own pocket, spent 5,000 bucks. And this is about six years ago, seven years ago. And I pitched that to Speed Channel. Velocity Channel and a variety of other places, nobody got it. They didn't, they did, they said, eh, it's too teachy. And eh, our viewers don't want to see that. That's when it says, you know, I think you're the problem because a lot of a lot of companies are run by folks who maybe aren't qualified to run them. A lot are, a lot are, but for whatever reasons, they didn't get the charm of, of a junkyard show. They didn't see it. They didn't get it. Maybe enough, enough yelling, whatever, you know, that whole thing. Um, so I finally said, hey, Dave Freiberger, he was roadkill, of course, dominating. Mm-hmm. Um ruling the world i sent it he goes it's pretty good let's give it a try on motor, motor trend on demand so they did and it was popular so by way of david freiberger and his vision uh the junkyard gold or junkyard crawl became road kills junkyard gold fine with me i'll be under his umbrella any day and uh, we did three seasons 31 episodes and then it was canceled so it's over you know uh-huh. for now for now yeah a lot of folks they come up hey i love that show i said well it's the one 
the last show we did was two years ago and you know but i mean you can see my weight get up and down and stuff like that you know i can tell there but there's 31 episodes and, and you can see them mostly on, on motor trend certainly and then motor trend on demand and there's 31 of them so go dig yeah. uh, if you, you want to see them but there's no more planned although my personal realm um i'm, I'm gonna i have a youtube channel I'm just sort of crawling to get started and i'm certainly going to be uh, doing more junkyard stuff okay. and maybe, maybe return the thing and I, I can do it it's not theirs like i'll call it junkyard silver or zinc or something you know but uh so but it was it was a tough thing to get on the air i was i was shocked and surprised um you know that nobody did it first you know well and you know there's something so kind of universal car person about that where you look at a finished car and it's either i love the way that guy did that or i would have done it differently but looking at a carcass in a junkyard it's just a blank canvas you know and so to talk about it to hear you talk about oh this is how i would build it and then to be able to say oh well, this is how i would build it and sit there and watch that sort of repeat it's it's the same thing that you would do if you were walking through the junkyard yourself and i i think that's a really relatable cool thing i enjoy the show yeah the vicarious thrill of discovery Yep. You know, and I say it's it's like diving on a Titanic without the water, without the sharks, you know, the thrill of and and I say to there's no need. They say, well, we're going to destroy these cars, right? <laughs> oh, you think so? Because, you know, the, the first and fastest way to destroy a, a, an automotive show is to start restoring or building. The budget goes insane. Yeah. Volunteers run after the first couple of days. They don't come back. They don't show up anymore. They're, they're gone. The B team. They, if you're not paying people, they don't stick around. I get it. You know, people have to work. So uh, I say, you don't have to touch them. Just look at the, shine a light on this thing, an expert eye, and describe what it is and what it is not, and move on. No need to buy it and flip it. Or I think a lot of shows go wrong when they say, well, let's take it, let's go flip it. Then the yeah. show slows down. And who cares? I think just identifying the car is just, that's that's what people like. That's what I like. So uh, hopefully more of that stuff down the road. Maybe Motor Trend. I don't know if, they, if, uh, if I can um, convince them again. We'll see what happens. To make sense of Steve's encyclopedic knowledge of automotive history, it's worth noting that throughout our conversation, he was sitting at his table surrounded by a few stacks of books. Some of them are huge volumes full of detailed information. Behind him, there are shelves with dozens more. Watching the show, you know, you pull just out of thin air, out of your head, production numbers and option codes and things like that. How, how do you do that? Well, okay, I'll tell you. I mean, if you watch me at Barrett Jackson for the last 16 years... I'll have like these little guys here. You know, these are these are note card notepads, and you know I don't know. I mean, I, I you know I can't remember. I, I told you I'm not great at math. You know, I'm good at thinking and stuff, but I can't remember paint codes or production uh -huh. numbers. But I know when they're important, and I know where to look when I have to have them. So what I do at Bear Jackson is for the week before we even go there, I sit and I look at the docket and I, I, I pick some things I'm going to say about the car, some research and have it in my notepad. So at the show I'm reading and I don't, I never hide. I say, Hey, prepare, go, go, go read, do. So in the junkyard show, I was to go there three days before anybody showed up with a camera and I would look at the cars and then come up with a theme, bunch of cop cars, bunch of muscle oh, cops and robbers, you know, and, and the trouble sometimes was what to leave out there's so many cool things but they like to theme I mean, in other words in this episode all four doors or all wagons or whatever it would be because it was easier for them to describe and, and program honestly and put on the tv guide kind of thing and because well, steve goes to the junkyard again okay well, well, well where's the theme so that was kind of a weird thing but it was a good idea they came up with that at first i was just wandering and there was no form but that's okay it was okay by me but at the same time it was problematic yeah. so so i absolutely would go in there and i would have my stuff prepared before we went to each car 
So preparation. Oh yeah. You know, and I won't, I'll never say, Oh, I'm just, just comes naturally. <laughs> no, no. You know, I look up that stuff and, you know, and sometimes you get it wrong or one thing, sometimes it's a nightmare, you're out in the middle of nowhere. There's no, there's no uh, uh, internet connection. You're like, Oh crap. Yeah. I sometimes travel with books, about 60 pounds of books walking through the airport. It gets, gets old. So, um, but yeah, there's preparation for sure. And I always say that, you know, fill your library before you fill your garage. Yeah. And the same thing goes with the TV show. And, and, you know, anybody who goes and tries to give a car a voice who wasn't the designer of that car, you're going to screw up. It's going to happen. So skip that part and just study before you go in. Right. You know? what, what does your reference library look like? I have a whole oh, other yeah. room of, uh, of uh, magazines and books. And I just, you know, I, I, I stay current. But one of my favorite things are, you know, these like American car guides and stuff like that. Because they give yeah. production numbers and, and, you know, things like, um, like, you know, like this deal here, you know, with all that data. And those are the gold mines. And beyond that, of course, you know, dealer brochures are pretty cool, but they take up space. And the dealer brochure, sometimes the information in those is not 100% correct. It's pre-production and it's always got a sales buzz around it. So reading through that to get to the break drum diameter can sometimes take more time than it does with a book, you know. But um, but yeah, research stuff. And and the internet's wonderful too. Although the internet's, you know, double-edged sword, as is a book, you know, and you try and get like two or three references that have the same conclusion. You say, okay, that's solid. And production is... You know, production numbers. I, I always uh, sometimes on set. There's a guy holding out the paper just off camera. You sometimes see its reflection in my glasses. So a little pro tip: watch my glasses, see the reflection of the stuff in the background. You know, when when we did the Nova Week to Wicked Nova, and you came out there and joined us in California, you kind of blew my doors off because it was the car as we drove it in was a six cylinder. Uh, 60. Well, it was a sixty seven Nova. We called it a sixty six because it had sixty six front clip on it, but you you ran straight without i didn't see any reference material ran straight to the the vin and said this car was a v8 car how did it get a six cylinder in it and i was like wow how does he know this you know that's amazing (laughs) yeah well it's you know it's it's pretty pretty simple you know and the thing with that of course is um on gm products the third digit of the vin if it's an odd number figure it's it's a six or four in some cases if it's even it's uh typically a v8 that's the quick Mm-hmm. and and the data for that is um it's only as far away as uh you know like like these things you know this guy right here and in these i mean it's there's there's an order to every one of these things we can see here you know this uh you know the tempest six and whatever it is it's, it's all right there yeah. and so you know i guess you know i didn't invent that stuff i just i use it you know but um, yeah and when I'm writing, I, everything slows down it is kind of funny too when I was doing more writing than television um it was kind of a problem for the TV stuff because when you're writing, you can stop everything, walk into the, get the book, come back and sit down. When you're doing TV, you have to have that stuff either ready to go top of your head or just off camera, a place where you can reference it, a big cue card or something like that. So sometimes, um, you know, writing is easier than TV because uh, if you want to get it right and you don't want to go so general, like, well, a lot of these cars have V8s. Well, how many, you know, 1,604. Well, why is that a big deal? Sometimes it's not, you leave it out. But if it's, you know, if it's like, like, uh, you know, 2% had V8s and this makes it a very rare car. Well, you want to point that out yeah. you know, and give it some contrast, tell, you know, give the number that drives it home. I'm going to, again, put you on the spot oh. with, <laughs> with your, your vast knowledge of, of all things cars. If you, if time and money were no object and you could build or buy any car, what would it be? You know, uh, it wouldn't be a Rolls Royce or a Ferrari or anything like that. I think probably, um, Perhaps a 63 Catalina Swiss cheese with all the aluminum. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I want the three-speed manual because that's how they actually built them, the early ones, with a specific low first gear cluster. And it was made just for the super duties. Um, but anytime that the factories, um, you know, 
stopped everything and, and stamped aluminum fenders. I think the scrap rate of those things was like 60% or something like that because multiple stamps were required to uh, get the forms and stuff like that. And I guess the metal would begin to tear, so to reduce the load in the presses. So these guys had to stop everything for that stuff, which usually happened at night. And sometimes that meant that you know the, 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 the C team was on the job, not the A or the B. Yeah. And you know the stuff was kind of raw and raunchy, required little welding to fix up and stuff. But but anything that's uh, you know bizarre, rare stuff that comes out of a mass-produced setting is pretty cool. A hand-hammered Ferrari is pretty cool. It's kind of weird that one side does not match the other, and one door will not fit the next car. That's cool, but it's almost it's predictable. It's like pottery, whereas you know like GM when they stop everything to make an aluminum fender or a hood, that that's really a whole different thing to me. Also doing things like uh, on those Catalinas because they were, you know, GM had to work with what they had. And those Catalinas were massive cars and they were full frame cars. So they actually had the frame, which, as you know, is the girders underneath the car. That would be cut with big circular holes, the Swiss cheese name. And it was so flexible that they could be harmed while being moved. So they had temporary bits of, I think, two by four, some sort of wood that fit into the C channel of the frame. It, was, it wasn't tie wrapped in, but it was tied in. that So that when they moved the frame, it wouldn't twist or get warped or messed up or bent. So that's, wow. And then when they finally put the thing on the cut, the wood out and put it on there. So just things like that were uh, you know going over and above and all that just to get you know praise and ink if, and they wouldn't, if they won, like, uh, you know, the super stock uh, eliminators at the uh, N863 World Nationals or something like that, yeah. all of that to get ink and sell cars, you know, win on Sunday, hopefully sell on Monday. You know, the, there there was a hot rod magazine feature on the Swiss cheese Catalinas because I, like, I, I have the issue and I have no idea what it is, but I always wondered looking at that, like, man, how did that thing not just twist up like a pretzel? But it's, so it's interesting to hear you say that they had to actually brace it just to move it. Yeah, yeah. And when, when put together, they were fine, you know. And that's the thing. It speaks to the fact that, you know, if you ever look at pictures of, like, uh, full-frame cars, there were, like, cordwood frames stacked, you know. But these Swiss cheese ones were so thin that, you know, they could easily be bent. And, you know, why mess it up in process? So they had to take the step of putting wood in a damn thing to, you know, just to <laughs> And they probably had a niche line for those as well, you know. Yeah. But anything that's, you know, everybody wants something that's special and unique and cool, you know. And, um, you know, the the, uh, the super stalkers were absolutely like that. You know, the, the Hemi cars went on together on specific lines where the guys could then use put the plastic side windows in them and the, the corning rear windows in the 65 a990s and let alone the, the altered wheelbase cars which were done off-site at a former ambulance factory ammo wagon that whole story has been repeated over and over mm-hmm. but uh just you know just interesting stuff that um you know most people wouldn't recognize in fact the car doesn't tell you these things and i always say that you know i love everything about cars except one thing they don't talk yeah. you know so it's up to us to give them a voice as best we can and not guess while we're at it i'm surprised to hear you say pontiac and and not one of the 65 loophole machine chryslers well you know check in with me in 10 minutes and that'll be <laughs> you know and i know well, you know it's, it's so and another thing too that i love is the 65 holman and moody overhead cam mustangs what a beautiful car mm. and i have to say that in 66 when they stretched the nose they got even nicer i thought they were cool like some of the earliest task of ford cars again those were built at holman and moody down in north carolina john john wanderer i think was a project engineer he's now was a las vegas lawyer and that was he he wandered so far from that early life he became an attorney mm. but he also wrote about and took pictures of those days and he was one of the best sources i think in the late uh, late 90s john wanderer sort of blossomed and and uh, started 
started writing about and sharing these pictures he'd had for years that showed the Holman Moody plant with the guys drilling the holes and how crude the cars were and the punch list of things to be fixed. And uh, so, yeah, the 65 FX Mustangs were one of the Thunderbolts were cool too, but, uh, but, you know, hobbled by that, you know, the pushrod 427, the cameras, anything with the Amy had is, is amazing to me. Knowing what you know about the history of the auto industry, what do you see happening in the future, both with, with new cars and with the old collector car hobby? Well, I will say that, you know, being born in 57, I was there to see the knee-jerk reactions and the flinches of the early 80s when the V8 is dead, folks. We're done. All about fuel economy. Mm -hmm. and, and the wonderful machines that the first Civics and Rabbits were. They showed Detroit how to build a proper front-wheel drive compact car. Good stuff. The Pinto and the Vega were embarrassing by comparison, truly. And that's, you know, they were blown out of the water. But here we go with, uh, you know, the 80s come along, fuel gets a little cheaper, and suddenly the 5.0 is back. And it's great. It's a wonderful thing. And then the SUV comes along. We've unlearned everything about fuel economy because we can get fuel. I'm not judging it in any way, but I'm just saying that we seem to unlearn a lot of stuff. So here we are now in another knee-jerk flinch where the electric cars are coming, folks. And we got to remember, we've been here before. In 1920, steam, electric, and gas were all equally mm -hmm available and, and popular so the electric thing is cool i do understand it takes something to make something and to create the electricity to uh, you got to burn some coal or something hopefully solar or nuclear i like nuclear it's okay as long as you can get rid of the junk properly and that's the big problem but um I, I like the electric thing and i think that tesla is brilliant in the way that they're making electricity fun and cool rather than well you know the the, the prius it was a hybrid is a hybrid mm -hmm. and they kind of went green with that just fine green's cool but that's a good way to turn off the knuckle draggers like me i'm half right. I'm half i'm half knuckle dragger and half uh, advanced whatever but the prius was kind of a boring thing but the tesla thing that whole vibe with the ludicrous speed and the dual engine cars which will absolutely keep up with the hellcat mm -hmm. um that's a great way to sell make you know you, you can never sell an old man's car to a young man but you can sell an old man's car a young man's got an old man, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So by making the electric thing uh, fun and exciting, Tesla has really rocked it. And Ford, of course, is taking the bait, a Mustang. But the Mustang has these three different modes. There's unbridled, <laughs> there's uh, corralled. And, you know, I mean, they're, they're marketing things, but they're also very real. They push this button, the thing pulls butt, push that when it's gentle. Yeah. And so I think the future does, yeah, more electricity. But is gas going away? I, I It'll be a long time because they're still selling, you know, $90,000 SUVs with six-year notes. Yeah, and that yeah. means six years of gas. Got to have that. They're not stopping that. So, you know, gas is, you know, it's it's the most efficient thing. I mean, you get so much energy out of this little cup of liquid, you know, look what it does. And reciprocating engines may be inefficient, but we've come so far cleaning them up. But, and they also, apparently in, in some cars in, in LA, the exhaust is cleaner than the air going in. So they're <laughs> that good at scrubbing emissions. So, you know, we're being irresponsible in a very responsible way, you know, in the last many years. So I think gasoline engines are, are here for a while longer. And the, ele the electric thing, I, I think I heard that GM was talking about being all electric within eight years. Yeah. Uh, I will say Edsel, you know, it, you can you can about face immediately on anything. It doesn't seem to be working. My, my big question is, if you look out the door at a traffic jam, if all of those cars suddenly had to recharge at the same time, when you're ready to do that, that's when the electric car becomes a very real proposition. In the meantime, it's still not there, you know. The infrastructure isn't there to support yeah. it. That's right. That's right. When every gas station also has an equally um, efficient charging part, then, you know, we'll be on our way. But right now it's still, you know, I was at a hospital last week, an x-ray in my shoulder, things are fine. But there was a, a juice, they call it a juice bar. It was a Tesla juice bar. It was actually marketed. It was a charging station mm -hmm. for three cars. That was it. And the whole parking lot had, you know, hundreds of spots, three spots. 
and three Teslas were there with MD plates on them, you know, and, um, but that's it, three, three charging systems. So I think, you know, when we can charge them at a much greater rate, then they'll, they'll be a real thing. And I'm fine with them. They're okay. They make torque, you know, they're fast, they're quick, you know. People talk about, yeah, I mean, you were talking about the gas crunch, you know, in 73 when everybody, hot rod guys, muscle car guys, race guys are like, oh man, what are we going to do? Selling yeah, the you know, Hemi, hundred bucks. I mean, getting rid of the Hemi because it, you know, but yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, my dad sold his 455 GTO for that reason. He didn't think he could afford to put gas in it anymore. Uh, you know, and so then you hear some of that now, like in, among enthusiasts, you know, well, what if, what if I can't get gas for my Hemi Cuda or what if I can't get gas for my C10 truck? You know, I mean, is that something that you worry about or have a feeling about? Well, it's a good point. You know, money will solve everything. You know what I mean? I think it is possible that, you know, 2010, it won't be any sooner, but it's possible that you'll have to go to the boutique and buy gasoline for your, your piston vehicle. But at this point, there's so many of them and not just any cooters, but there are, you know, there's workers who get to work every day in their old Chevy pickup. It's got gasoline. So, you know, and, and there's, you know, there's strength at the bottom rungs of the economy. Folks were laborers. I was one and I kind of still am, you know, and uh, as long as those folks need gasoline to power their, their cars, they can't afford to buy electric. They're going to be fed. So, you know, I'm not too worried about it, you know, and even if, I mean, you know, in a worst case scenario, there we are in, you know, 2039 or something like that. And you got to go buy a jug of, you know, a big drum of gasoline. Um, I think the market is, I mean, people are not going to throw away their investments. There are millions of collector cars on this planet that run on gasoline. The market will request and uh, the, the system will supply. It'll just come down to how much it costs for a gallon, you know. The the thing that I sort of liken it to, I, w- when I went to college the first time, I was an art student and I did a lot of photography and it, it was, this was early 2000s, art photography was black and white. And I could walk into then 2003, four, I could walk into Target and buy a roll of black and white film. And it was right there next to all the color film, you know. And now, of course, you can still get black and white film. I can still shoot it, but I have to go to the camera store, which is across town to get it. That's the analogy that I always sort of. That's a great analogy. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have anything else, any other points that you'd like to make or plugs for anything that you're working on? I guess. Yeah, I I do have, um, I do have a podcast called the Steve Maggs muscle car show. And what I do is basically read from my 1001 muscle car facts book. And, um, and between each fact, I'll stop and say, I chose that fact because, and Oh, by the way, there's also another, since I wrote that, this is service. So so since October, we got about 50,000 followers, which is Mm -hmm. nice. And we were down for about the last couple of months. My partner, Chris Roberts, um, his daughter had a, a health thing. So, so we kind of shut down for a little while, but uh, we're going to get back into action within the next couple of weeks. So that that's happening. And beyond that, um, if you get a chance, tune into uh, Motor Trend, either on demand or the Motor Trend channel to see Steve Mignanti's Supermodels. No, I'm not hanging around with Christy Brinkley, but there's actually four episodes where uh, Motor Trend came to me, which is wonderful, uh, about a model car show. So there's four episodes where I built four models, one of which is uh, Jimmy Addison's Silver Bullet, the 67 GTX Street Racer in 125th scale. So uh, get it. If you get a chance, check out uh, Steve Bignanti's Supermodels. And of course, as always, on the Motor Trend app and also on the cable, check out uh, uh, Junkyard, Roadkill's Junkyard Gold when it airs. They rotate it from time to time, but on the app, you can see it any old time. There's 31 episodes. And of course, you know, keep an eye out. Well, another thing too, real quick. Um, you might remember Spanky Assiter from uh, the Barrett Jackson auction. He and his wife, Amy, were kind of the face of the auction for many years. Amy had the long black hair. So, so, she was on the commercials, pretty mm-hmm. gal. Well, he's still very much active, and he's got things. Spanky's uh, classic collector car auctions 
uh, I'm sorry, Spanky's Freedom Car Auctions in Texas. Well, he's in, on October 13th, he'll be selling 260 vintage Mopars at no reserve in an online auction. So uh, lots of 300s, letter, letter cars, and a lot of really neat stuff. So if you get a chance, folks, uh, on October 13th and 14th, uh, log on to Freedom Car Auctions. If you want to buy a Mopar at no reserve, it might, you might get a deal. So there you go. And also the Steve Miyake YouTube channel. There's a bunch of videos there that I've done uh, walking around these, these Mopars in the Texas Prairie. And there's rattlesnakes too. So check that out. <laughs> <laughs> little drama. Yeah, yeah, little drama. And I've even thought maybe about, you know, just like maybe a show where we go to museums like yours. Of course, the Speedway your, your Museum is an astonishing thing. Mm-hmm. I think your place and Garlitz's place and the NHR Museum, probably the three of the top 10 on the planet of historical artifacts in one spot. I could see maybe doing a show where just standing next to a, a Henry Ford prototype, uh, whatever it might be, and then giving the story of it, maybe disassembling it a little bit. And putting it back together nicely, you know, I always like at Barrett Jackson some years back, there were a bunch of Corvette beta builds that were auctioned. And uh, I just would love to have gotten one of those and disassembled it gently to yeah. look at like experimental castings and just stuff like that and put it back together gently, you know, but uh, anyway, but uh, something like that could be kind of fun. Thanks to Steve Mignanti for being our guest today, and thanks to all of you for listening to What Moves You, a Speedway Motors podcast. To see photos and watch video we referenced in today's episode, visit the toolbox at speedwaymotors.com. Email the podcast at podcast at speedwaymotors.com, and if you like what you heard, tell a friend where to find us. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you in two weeks.